If you turn with me to uh, Genesis chapter 29. I'm working on a series at uh, Eastmanville, going through, the, uh, through the, uh, the book of Genesis. And we're only reading the last five verses or so of Genesis chapter 29. But in Genesis 29, what we find is that Jacob has traveled because his brother has threatened to kill him. And so he needs to get out of town, but he leaves without money. And uh, so he comes to Paddan Aram to uh, Laban's house, and, and his, he had been sent specifically to marry a daughter of Laban. And he gets there and finds out he and Laban seem to click. They are bone of bone and flesh of flesh. They seem to really um, hit it off right away. And uh, so at a, point, at a certain point, uh, Laban asks Jacob, how much do I have to pay you? I can't just keep taking your, 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 uh, your labor for free. How, how much can I, you know, how much will it cost me for you to serve me? And, and so Jacob says, for your daughter Rachel, I will work seven years. And Laban seems to agree. He's kind of, uh, you know, it's not really contract language. He says, he says in essence, he says, well, I guess it's better that you get her than someone else. That's not the kind of language that you sign a contract with. And there's a reason for that. Um, and then what happens, of course, seven years later, which go by very quickly for Jacob because he's so in love with Rachel, um, Laban deceives him and switches out the daughters and puts Leah in her place. And so he wakes up the next morning and he has been deceived and, and he's angry and he's upset. And Laban says, listen, he said, I'll tell you what, give her seven days and seven days from now, I will give you Rachel and then you can work another seven years for me. And, and Jacob is understandably upset about this. And so this is what we find. Start, and that's kind of the background coming into verse 31. So Genesis chapter 29 at verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also, and she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name is called Levi, was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Thus ends our reading of the word of God. And let's ask his blessing on his word. Father, again, having read your holy, infallible and inspired word, but again, a, a word Lord, there, is, there are depths of, of grace and sweetness and power in here, but without your Holy Spirit, we cannot see it. So we pray, be with my mouth, bring together the, the thoughts of my heart and mind in such a way that is pleasing to you, and be with each one here present. Give them, give them exactly the portion it is that they need to strengthen, to encourage, and to lift them up. All these things, Father, we ask in Jesus' name alone. Amen. I believe that one of the uh, one of the greatly underappreciated qualities 
of the Word of God is that it is, in fact, a guidebook for the healing of the human heart and mind. Uh, when, when the Lord had first taken his, his children out of Israel, or out of, out of Egypt, and he brought them across the Red Sea, then they went into the wilderness for about three days, and they were without water, and then they came to some water, but the water was bitter. And so he told Moses how to heal the water and how to make the, the bitter water sweet. And, and then uh, he said a couple other things, but one of the things that he says, for I am the Lord your God who heals you. God is a healer of his people, and he's a, but he doesn't just heal flesh and bone. So we, we, think, about, we think about when Jesus comes. When, Je- when Jesus came into this world, when he walked among us, one of the great evidences, one of the great proofs, one of the great testimonies he himself said uh, that he is who he said he is, is the fact of all his healings. This is a fact. This is a reality because wherever he went, he healed. And, and he healed all these physical ailments. He, he made the lame to walk, the paralytics to, 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 to rise up and to stand. Uh, he gave sight to the blind. He gave hearing to the deaf. He gave speech to the mute. He cleansed the lepers. But that wasn't all that he did. He, he, did every, he healed every kind of physical ailment, but he also healed every kind of mental illness and mental anguish, okay? And, and so uh, in our language, it sounds strange because in our very technical and, and modern uh, medical type world, we don't think of it in exactly the same terms. 2,000 years ago in Israel, but not just in Israel, in the Greek world too, this was, was well known. They would speak of, of mental illness, depression, anxiety disorders, bipolar, schizophrenia, etc. They would speak of these things as demon possession. And they had a reason for that, and I'm not going to go into that or why that is, but that's not as... As, as dumb as a lot of people might think in today's world. Uh, but that being said, Jesus was casting out demons left and right. He, he didn't just heal the physical. He healed the mental, the spiritual. He healed every aspect that needed to be healed. I am the Lord your God who heals you. And this is who Jesus showed us. This is how we know that he was God. This is one of the great proofs that he was God. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm not trying to simplify or minimize the, 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 the very real depths of mental illness. I'm not saying, oh, believe in Jesus and your depression will be gone. Believe in Jesus and you won't be bipolar anymore. No. It's not impossible and, and all through the history of the church, starting with, with, with Jesus and, and then even his uh, apostles afterwards, they were, you know, Jesus obviously healed everyone. But the disciples or apostles also were given power to, to, to heal. And, and we know that all through history that there have been times that people have prayed. People have spent time in, in prayer and literally have been healed overnight. Those things do happen. But that is not the normal course. The normal course is, is, is it's, a, it's a process over time. And that's kind of what we see tonight. Our story in this evening is a story of healing. In fact, I believe it's the first great story of healing that's in the Word of God. 
And, and it's speaking of a, about the healing of Leah. And, and this is our theme and points that if, if someone would like to take these down, but the Lord heals, in our text, the Lord heals the torment of Leah's heart. First of all, by seeing and hearing her. Second of all, by not giving her her desire. And third, by showing her the place of true fulfillment. So, when we get into this text, we're talking about the torment of Leah's heart and how God heals it. But, but what is he healing exactly? And, and we see that right away in verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated. Excuse me. Hate is an incredibly powerful force. Hate, anger, resentment, to be despised. Brothers and sisters, they've done a lot of research on this. And these are the things that cause depression. Children that grow up in a background of hatred and anger and fury are six times more likely as they grow up to commit suicide. They are 65 to 70 times more likely um, to get into crime. They're 100 more times likely to become very, very angry people themselves. Hatred is an incredibly powerful force. Leah was hated. So who's she hated by? Well, she's hated by Jacob, which is pretty stunning, right? In the King James, they won't even put the word hated there. They just said that, that she, was, she was not as loved, less loved, right? They won't even put the word, but the word is hated. She was hated. She was despised by Jacob. But why? Well, I told you part of the story, and, and, and part of it is, is that that the reason that Laban does all his trickery and all his deception is because he's got this awesome desire to be rich. And Jacob, in his eyes, is the key. Because Jacob, obviously, is a gifted, gifted shepherd. And, and Laban had not much of a flock before, before he came along. And later, in later chapters, you'll see Jacob testifying to how his flocks and herds have grown in multiples, because Jacob is a super gifted herdsman. He's a super gifted shepherd, and he understands how to how to make it make 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 the make the flocks and the herds grow, and and so Laban sees him as the key to his wealth, which is why he locks him in for that first seven years, and that again is why he locks him in for another seven years and fools him and gives him Leah instead of Rachel because he does not want Jacob to leave. Because he knows as soon as Jacob gets what he wants, then Jacob's going to leave. But here's the problem for Jacob. Jacob is poor. He has nothing. So he sees Laban and his relationship with Laban as the key to gaining wealth and, 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 and to rising. And, and so he cannot afford to pour out his wrath and his fury and his anger about being deceived against Laban. He cannot do it. He has to work with Laban. But this, this wrath, this fury, this anger that he feels at being deceived 
By the way, brothers and sisters, it's no accident. If you go back to Genesis 27, I think it's verse 31, maybe it's 41, but I think it's 31. But, but, but it speaks about when he lied and deceived Jacob or Isaac to get the blessing. It says that and Esau hated Jacob. That's very connected because here now he's been lied to. He's been deceived. And now he is filled with hatred, fury, and anger. And so Leah becomes the pathway. Leah is the pathway of his anger. He's got to get rid of this garbage that's in him somehow, and he can't do it against Laban, so he, he does it against the daughter. And brothers and sisters, that's a horrifying thing. You know, earlier it says to us, I think in verse 17, it says that it's given a description and, and I don't like what the ESV says here. Um, the ESV says that Leah's eyes were weak, but that's not what it says in, 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 in the word. Uh, in the Hebrew, the word means that she, her eyes were tender or soft. And then it gives a description of Rachel. And what it is is that very simply, and in the, in, in the, the Bible writer, the, the divine writer is very blunt Rachel has a beautiful body and a beautiful face. Now think about that for just a moment. Why would the writer tell us that? Because the writer is telling us what Jacob's in love with. Because he's in love with what he sees. She is a beautiful, beautiful woman. And so he's in love with the outside. It doesn't tell us anything about the inside. We have no idea about Rachel's character, her personality. We have no idea of that. We just know that from the outside, she is gorgeous. But Leah, it says, her eyes are tender or soft. Now, what does that mean? So a lot of the, and obviously the ESV interpreters do the same thing, a lot of the commentators want to say that that's because that, that, that Leah's cross-eyed or some other ignorant thing, that somehow that her eyes make her ugly or, you know, not very attractive. But I don't believe that's at, at all what the Word of God is saying. I believe the Word of God is actually telling us something about Leah, about what's inside her. It's because your eyes are kind of a window to your soul. And when it says that her eyes are tender or soft, it's telling us that Leah is a, a tender-hearted young woman. She's a decent, sweet girl. I don't think that she was ugly. I don't think she was unattractive. Next to Rachel, she's not the same. That's a fact. That's a reality, okay? That, that's for sure. But it's telling us something about who she is on the inside. She is a young lady that probably, like a lot of young women all through history, has grown up and her greatest desire is to get married to a husband that she loves and that loves her and to have a family. That's her heart. That's her mind. This is a woman that has a lot of love to give. But yet through no fault of her own, but because of sin in this world, because this is a result of sin, brothers and sisters. The whole story, all these stories are telling us something about what happens when man falls into sin. First, we're separated from God, and then we're separated from one another. And so anger and wrath and fury and, and all these things come into the world because of our desires and, and not getting what we want. 
And that's what's happening in this story. Jacob is very disappointed with his life. He's very angry with what's going on. He's, got, he's been saddled with a wife he, doesn't, he never wanted in the first place. And so we can kind of understand that. We can understand the frustration of that. He also has just signed a contract for another seven years to serve Laban, literally, for what he originally bargained for for seven years. It's now going to cost him 14 years. And so when he comes home to Leah, when he comes to Leah's tent, and she tries to greet him, and she tries to, to, to prepare a meal for him and, and to, to be sweet to him. And, and looking for something back, he gives her nothing. He despises her. All the fury and all the anger and all the, all the powerlessness he feels with Laban, he pours out on her. But God does not want that for her. God does not want her soul to shrink up, to dry up, to lose that tenderness, to lose that sweetness. He doesn't, he doesn't want that for her. He doesn't want her destroyed as many people in that situation because she has no other place to go. That's not back in the day. You know, there's, there's not going to be 10 lawyers arriving at her door and saying, your father did what? Oh, we're going after him. We'll get everything. Your husband's treating you How? We'll have a divorce by tomorrow. This, that's not happening in this situation. The only place that's, that's worse than where she's at is if she tries to leave and go out on her own. You can't go out. In the ancient world, it was a dangerous, dangerous world. The only place more worse than where she's at is outside the walls. But the Lord saw it. The Lord saw it, and, he, and, he, and it says that he opened her womb. And, and think about just before we get into the, how he begins to really heal her, he opened her womb. One of the things that people testify about the horrible things about being hated and being in a place where you're hated and despised and rejected is the sense of loneliness. You're alone. You are unloved. You are uncared for. And God said it when he created created Adam. He, he says, it is not good that man should be alone. We are not meant to be alone. But Leah's never going to have the love of Jacob like Rachel does. But God does open up a path for love for her. Because when a woman has a child, by God's grace, a woman is created and built in a certain way that all this love that's in her gets poured out on that child. So think about that. That child, and there's all these studies, I think, I just, I think it's one of the amazing things about this, this day, there's a lot of bad things, but one of the amazing things is how much we find out about every facet of, of children being born, that the time that their mother holds them, the time that their mother nurses them, and, and the psalmist, over... 3,500 or over 3,000 years ago actually refers to this. He says, I learned to trust while on my mother's breasts. And that is actually a fact. That is a reality that a mother holding a child, cuddling that child, feeding that child, loving on that child, doting on that child, that child in that first year and a half or two becomes 
there's something that never leaves that child. There's a security that that child has that if you take them and remove them from their mothers, and this is anyone, I don't wish to insult or hurt anybody because I know we adopt children, but anyone who has adopted children knows that it's hard. It's brutally hard because those children did not have what a mother holding her child for that first two years has. They learn to trust. But not just as the child receiving something, the mother is receiving something. So God is creating a pathway for Leah's love. She has all this love to share. She has all this tenderness and the sweetness in her to share, but she doesn't have a husband that wants it. He wants nothing to do with it. So she pours it out on these children. And that begins the healing process. So notice how um, she testifies, too, that, that the Lord has seen and heard her, right? Because that's the, that's the first thing that we see in, in, in that's necessary for this healing. So we read in verse 32, And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. And that means, literally, look, a son. And, and the whole idea, she names him Reuben, look, a son, because... Jacob, I, I, I don't know what went wrong or, or why this thing is upside down and, and why you loathe me and why you despise me, but I love you. And, and, and so it's like this child is like an offering, her, her gift offering. And, and she's like, look, a son. And then look what it says. Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction. Because the Lord has looked on my affliction. So in her loneliness, in this place of, 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 of hatred, because think about it, her father, and later on both Rachel and Leah will testify that their father doesn't love them. He doesn't care about them. Jacob obviously despises her. But, but what about Rachel? That should be somebody she could talk to. Well, she can't talk to Rachel. If you look in the next chapter, it actually says, there will be a point, she says, you know, you, you've taken my husband from me. She says, I think it's verse 15, but she said, is it, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? And, and so how can you hang out with that woman, right? You've taken my husband. You get the best of him. I get nothing. So she's alone. But in her loneliness, God gives her this knowledge, this sense. The Lord has seen my affliction. And, and brothers and sisters, this is the answer. You know, there's a lot of garbage that's being spewed in our colleges and universities and, and even in our, in our high schools and grade schools now because all these university students are coming down with all this training and teaching about victimization. And, and you're supposed to claim your victimhood. You're supposed to claim, I'm a victim, right? And, and, they, and they have a whole order of victimhood, right? If you're a woman, automatically, you've been oppressed by men for thousands of years, all right? So you're a victim automatically, White male, forget about it. You are the oppressor. There's no victim, victimization on your part. You are the victim. You're, you're the victimizer. But if you're a woman, automatically you're a victim. If you're a woman of color, then we could start stacking it up. And they literally teach that, that we're going to stack up how many times you've been victimized. So if you're a woman of color, well, then you're double a victim. If you're a woman of color that says that you're not heterosexual, oh, there goes another one. 
And, and so what they're teaching in these universities, in these colleges, and this is a fact, this is a reality. I'm not, I'm not trying to spin this or, or skew this in some way to make it sound worse than it is. It's actually worse than what I'm telling you. They're telling you as victims that you need to claim it. You've been oppressed. Go hard and claim it and tell them they owe you. Leah is literally the definition of a victim. But look how God deals with her. First of all, he addresses the idea, he gives her a pathway of love, right? He gives her children. But then he makes it known to her. I have seen her in her affliction. Look at the, uh, look at the, the, the second son. Verse 33, she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated. Because he has heard that I am hated. Well, what, what did God hear? Well, brothers and sisters, I think he heard it all. I, I don't think my sense is that Jacob was not a screamer and a yeller. But when she reached out to him, he said nothing or he was really just nasty with her and brushed her aside. He saw and heard that Jacob did not give her one emotional thing, not one emotional blessing at all. He heard her tears. He heard her cries in the loneliness of the night because you know that even though Jacob would use her, that he didn't spend his time with her, he spent his time with Rachel. That was the desire of his life. So he would come in and use her and then he would leave and then she would be there in, her, in the darkness by herself, weeping. Because the Lord has heard me. The Lord has heard me. So he first addresses the, the darkness and, and, and the hurt and the pain by, by hearing and seeing her. And, and brothers and sisters, this is the first thing that, that there are victims. There are a lot of people that are victimized in this world. And that is a fact. That is a reality. And it happens all over the place. And there is so much pain, and too many of us just overlook it and act like it's nothing. But if anybody's been through uh, a lot of pain or trauma, they know how bad it can hurt. And if you're stuck in that situation for a long time, it can just mess you up. But to teach your sons, your daughters, your friends, the people you work with, look, you're not alone. There's a living God who sees you who sees your affliction and sees your pain and he hears you and he hears your pain. He knows exactly where you're at. And then we see the second thing that he does, um, that the Lord does not, he does not give her her desire. And, and this one is a, is a little, this one's kind of gritty. You know, it's kind of a gritty one because what is Leah's desire? Right? Because God denies a lot of our desires for a good reason. Because humans are filled with desires. We have all kinds of ambitions. We have all kinds of desires to obtain this and to obtain that or whatever, etc. But a lot of our desires are not good desires. And so in, in God's love, not letting us have those, that's a good thing. But what is Leah's desire? It, it's right here. 
Right in, in, in verse 32. Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Look at verse 34, right? Verse 33 is, 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 the, is the birth of Simeon. But in verse 34, we, we see again that she hasn't given up on this. She conceived and born a son. Now this time my husband will be attached to me. Right? My husband will love me. My husband will be attached to me. Is that so wrong? Is that a bad desire for a wife to want her husband to love her and to care for her and, and to emotionally uphold and support her? That is not a bad desire. That is not a wrong desire. But we live in a very broken, broken world. And we can see from, you know, in the Old Testament, especially in the patriarchal period, God does not address this whole marriage issue. But Jesus tells us later on that from the beginning, it was not so. Right? But the culture was so strong, and when God calls Abraham out, he doesn't specifically give him the law. He doesn't give him the law. He doesn't tell him, you know, one wife, that's it. But we see it in the story. The stories are just told as they are, and we can actually see why it doesn't work. How, how can Jacob be fully committed to Rachel and love Rachel, but also love Leah? God's not going to give her that. Now, obviously, Lord willing, at some point down the road, they come to some kind of peace. The despising and the hating of Leah probably drops off at a certain point. But to, to have what she truly desires, that my husband will be attached to me, that he, that he will love me, it's not going to happen. Leah has what we all have. Leah and ourselves, we testify about the Reformed faith, we testify to who Jesus is, etc., etc. But the truth is, is most of us live our lives and we want to have a good road, a, a, a clean road, a, a straight road. And when things happen in our lives, we cry out, God, help me, things are not going good, this is bad. You know, take this, take this pain or take this affliction, take this grief away from me. And that's not wrong. Don't stop praying for that. But understand also that God has a reason for doing everything that he does. He knows what he's doing better than we do. And the pain and the affliction that are poured into our lives many times, he uses to strengthen us, to bless us. And of course, it's not affliction if it doesn't hurt, right? It, affliction hurts, suffering hurts. It's called those things for a reason. They're real. But God also brings us to see him better. Think about this for a moment. So her desire is that her husband would love her and be attached to her. And that's a good desire, and we understand it. But what could possibly be wrong with it? Well, look at Jacob. Jacob has this desire for Rachel. He loves Rachel. And then he gets her. So he has obtained his desire. And he's probably with her every night. He's out working like a dog every day, I can promise you that. But when he comes in, he hardly gives the time of day to Leah, but every other thing that he's got, he gives to Rachel. 
So he's got his desires. So why is he so angry? Why is he so upset still? Why is there so much wrath in his heart and mind? Because, brothers and sisters, as blessed as it is to have a spouse that loves you and whom you love, it's not everything. And that spouse cannot fulfill you all the way, and that's all there is to it. You need something more. You were created for more. You were created for, for a relationship with the living God. And only he can fulfill that heart, mind, and soul of yours. The perfect husband, who does not exist, cannot do that. The perfect wife, again, probably exists more than the perfect husband. But she also cannot do that for her husband. She cannot fulfill him. She cannot give him assurance and peace, the kind of peace that passes understanding. She cannot do that. And so what we see is that by God's grace, mercy, love, and blessing, he gives her that. Right? Because he does not give her what she desires even though it is a good desire, he gives her something better. He gives her a path or a, or a true fulfillment. And we see this in verse 35. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. And then she called his name Judah, which means praise. I do not think this is an accident at all. Because Judah isn't just a fourth son. Judah isn't just a particular period of time and she has grown in grace and truth and all of a sudden she sees it. No, there's something special about Judah. Because Judah is a child of both Jacob and Leah, which means that the seed of Christ is coming out of both of them, right? And, and Jesus is going to come out of the line of Judah. And so what that means is that, that genetically speaking, that Jesus is present in her womb when she conceives. Something happened to her during that pregnancy. She was given a peace, a sweetness, an understanding, a depth of understanding she had never seen, heard, or felt before. She realized, here I am wanting a husband that sees me and hears me and is attached to me. But I've got a God who sees me better than any man could ever see me 24 hours a day. I've got a God that hears every word, every thought 24 hours a day. And I have a God who is attached to me, who loves me. And even if Jacob could love me the way that he loves Rachel, he could never love me the way that my God does. She realized this 
when Judah was in her womb. She has come to acknowledge by God's grace, mercy, and love that God loves her so deeply and he gives her a fulfillment that is so sweet and so powerful. And I think about this, brother and sister, because this is, like I said, Jesus Christ, and, and we know this, we, we give lip service, service for sure, but Jesus Christ is the only way out of victimhood. There are true victims. Now, there's a lot of people babbling about being victims when they're not victims at all. They're actually victimizers. But that's actually the cure that the, the, the colleges and the universities give you. They tell you, you've been a victim, now it's your turn. You're going to become a victimizer. And that's actually what they make you. Because you're going to demand payment. You're going to demand that the people that have victimized you pay you. But let me tell you something. That is the road of anger, death, destruction. It leaves nothing in its path. That, that is not a road of healing. The road of healing is the road that we see right here. That we have a Savior who sees us. He sees every broken situation. He sees every broken heart. He hears and sees. He knows the whole story. And he says, I love you. I love you. You belong to me. And there's no place that you can go. If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell or Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and fly to the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, your hand shall hold me and your right hand shall lead me. That's assurance. Leah's life isn't over. Her path isn't over. The struggles aren't over. And neither are ours. But it's amazing to me because in this text, what we see is someone who's physically in the same place that they started. But spiritually, mentally, they're in a completely different place. They started as being hated, despised, alone, broken. On the path to anger, hatred, fury. And now she's here. Her husband still doesn't love her. But she knows that God does. Now I will praise the Lord. Now I will praise the Lord. Amen. Father, once again, we come before you and we know that you are the God who heals. You are the great physician. You are the God who sees us in all our pain and all our hurt. And Father, we know that our desires in the flesh. We think of all the broken situations in this world and all the divorces and, and all the pain and the grief, um, both for parents and for children. And we, we think too of 
of, of children who are growing up in broken homes and especially in the inner cities surrounded by drunkenness and hatred and, and, uh, and uh, violence even. And, and we know, Lord, that around the world and even in other nations, we think of places like India, um, around the world there are places where, where children and, and young people and are, are growing up in such squalor, such brokenness, such pain. But yet, Lord, we have a message, the gospel. Jesus Christ sees you. He knows you. Turn, believe, trust. He's the God who sees, the God who hears, and, and the God who is closer than any brother or any sister. The God who will uphold and keep you. Father, may it be that we will praise you, praise you in all of our life, glorify you, exalt you. Lord, we know that our lives continue. We know that our struggle will continue. We know that there will be more suffering and more affliction. But let it be that that assurance, that deep knowledge of your love for us just continues to grow. Because in this, we'll be able to stand against all things. Father, blessed be your holy name above every other name. All these things we ask in Jesus' name alone. Amen.